Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, world-renowned neuroscientist and best-selling author Antonio Damasio takes us on an exploration of the human brain and its inextricable link to emotions. Damasio is professor of neuroscience and director of the Brain and Creativity Institute at the University of Southern California. He is author of a number of noted books, including Descartes' Error and Looking for Spinoza. In this talk, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, Damasio discusses new breakthroughs in emotion research and how it is relevant to medicine and society. During the last decade of the 20th century, uh, as you know, people thought about it as the decade of the brain. and In fact, that's how it was described a number of times. And it's perfectly obvious that after the year 2000, we realized that the number of studies on the brain was actually increasing, our knowledge was increasing, and at least the current decade will have to be also the decade of the brain. And probably we're thinking of many other decades that will be the decade of the brain for the very simple reason that this is one of the last frontiers of science. Uh, And it is an area on which, in spite of all the progress that we have made, there's an enormous amount to be learned. And in fact, depending on your optimism or discouragement on any given day, we can either conclude at the end of the day that we know a lot and that we're making great progress or that we're really very ignorant. So I'm on a sort of medium day, not one or the other, and uh, uh, I'm going to try to uh, tell you about some of the good things that we have learned. Just as another uh, uh, preface I would like to tell you that the progress is really happening all around. Uh, Whether you're a molecular scientist working on molecules that intervene in brain function or working at the level of nerve cells um, individually or in, in groups of cells, or working in, at the level of systems and understanding large chunks of the brain and how they relate to the mind, the progress is really quite remarkable, and it involves all sorts of areas. It involves, for example, when, especially when we think about mind and brain, it involves areas such as perception and emotion and memory and language uh, and consciousness and our ability to decide and on and on. But all of this, I also want to make clear, has really two kinds of purposes. And again, depending on who we are, on which hat we're wearing on a given day, the purposes can be slightly different, although fortunately they both uh, are synergistic and they work together beautifully. One is the purpose of knowing enough about brain and mind so that we can diagnose and treat some of the major diseases of the brain. And, of course, everyone in this room is acquainted with the fact that these are some of the most difficult diseases to both diagnose and treat, and that we're really surrounded by them. So whether you're thinking about mood disorders or uh, something you could call psychopathy 
or learning disorders such as dyslexia or autism, uh, or the addictions. I'm not just thinking of drug addictions, but also other kinds of addiction, gambling, for example, or addiction to certain kinds of images, or degenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. All of these form a large spectrum of conditions that, in fact, are responsible for some of the major amounts of human suffering at any point uh, in the world, some of them very much in relation to our culture, some of them in relation even to our genetic background, but nonetheless, there they are. And they strike at all ages. In fact, all of the conditions that I've just mentioned to you uh, go all the way from conditions that strike in childhood to conditions that are typical of older age groups, such as Parkinson's and especially Alzheimer's disease and its related condition. All of these are very, very prevalent conditions. And I could mention stroke as well, which very often is associated to heart disease, but can be independent of it. So this is one of the purposes, to know enough that we can make uh, strides in these conditions. And I'll mention towards the end uh, a couple of areas in which these strides are being made and how actually our kind of research has a bearing on that. But then there's this other uh, world that is extremely important and quite fascinating, which has to do with understanding how mind and brain interrelate so that we can harness literally the creative, innovative powers of the human mind. Um, and this is something that, of course, would will allow us, as we go forward, to understand, for example, how we perceive art, how we perceive music, for example, how we can make music or make art. And I'm not, I, I'm giving these two examples, but of course, any artistic endeavor can be eventually illuminated by what we know about brain and mind. We hope with actually very good results, both for the receiver of all those great products of creativity as well as for the maker of those uh, products. But it also has a bearing on scientific and technological innovation and has a bearing on something that people very often don't think of when they hear the word creativity. And that is creativity in the social and cultural space. If you were to ask me, what was the first thing that human beings that walked the earth show their creativity in, I probably would venture, and I might be right, uh, I probably would venture that it was the invention, the creation of effective social relations. It was the invention of how to relate to other human beings, how to define rules of behavior, how to define social conventions, how to invent ethical rules, how to invent uh, mechanisms that could manage an economy and manage justice. And all of those, and I could mention several others, all of those elements that constituted the creation of a human social space. And this is actually one of the areas in which work in neuroscience and the mind can be extremely productive and can allow us to understand that. And you might say, well, why would you want to understand that? Just curiosity. And 
sure enough, curiosity is part of it, and why not be curious? In fact, humans are distinguished by many things, but one of them is being curious about themselves. We want to know how we're put together. We want to understand how we interrelate. But there's more, is that this can have a very practical value in understanding how we relate to each other and understanding, for example, the nature of social conflict. All you need to do is listen to the news or read the newspapers and you realize that the world is filled with conflict. And a lot of this conflict, you know, you can pinpoint something that has to do with a certain deal or an energy source, but a lot of it, in fact, is created by the way humans interrelate. And you find it in any kind of of space, urban or otherwise, and you find it in any country. So to try to understand how we communicate with each other, how we send signals through our face and our body and our posture, our voice uh, to each other is actually very important because there are differences and there's an enormous amount of commonality, and it is only by understanding this very deeply that we get at our shared humanity, uh, and uh, I think that that can help as well. I am a physician, I'm a neurologist and a neuroscientist, and so I tend to look very often at the biomedical issue that was the way... I was brought up is to think about disease and how to cure it. But there's more than that. And in fact, what is so beautiful about research in brain science right now is that it goes the whole range. And it can be biomedical in a strict sense, but it can also uh, go into these other areas that respond both to our curiosity and to our need, because we do have the need. In fact, one could say that you're still treating. If you're going to be able to do something about social conflict and understanding at social level, you're still diagnosing and you're still treating and you're still managing a problem. So for tonight, I was thinking about things that I would select. As you know, we don't have all the evening. We're going to finish probably before midnight. So uh, I thought that I could pick up something on emotion and memory and consciousness and interrelate the three with a variety of examples. You're listening to neuroscientist Antonio Damasio, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This coming Tuesday, May 2nd, 2006 at 7 p.m., the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series invites you to a talk by historian William Deverell at the Los Angeles Central Library. Deverell, the director of the Huntington USC Institute on California and the West, discusses The Redemptive West, a groundbreaking lecture on the role that the American West played in healing the wounds inflicted by the Civil War. This event is free, but reservations are required. Visit our website to reserve your seats and to download past radio programs. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to neuroscientist Antonio Damasio on understanding emotions and the brain. So I thought of starting with an example, which is a very real example, comes from a published study and connects with things that we have been doing in our laboratory for 20 years now uh, and have to do with emotion and decision-making and which is now also a very hot topic in many other laboratories around the world. And so I'm going to tell you a little story and, uh, and uh, give you an experimental situation and ask you to think through it. So suppose you come to our lab and I ask you 
to participate in an experiment in which you will have to choose an object. I'm going to give you lists of objects and descriptions of objects, and those objects are going to be... I'll just explain to you which objects they are, but I can tell you immediately that the purpose is at the end to, when I ask you to, to choose one of the objects as your best option, the object that you really would get if you were going to buy it in a store or in some kind of negotiation. One set of objects is actually very simple, and it would include household <laughs> items, things like toasters, um, towels, um, utensils for the kitchen, all things that you will see in a picture, you will see a description of the characteristics, and the description will tell you about advantages and disadvantages, something of the sort you could find in a consumer report. And it's going to be very clear that some objects are pretty good and some objects are not so good or bad. And you also get the price, okay, and you study that list. And then there's another set of objects. They're more complicated. For example, houses and cars. And, of course, talk about houses in, with the real estate market of L.A. immediately gives you a fright. But uh, at any rate, there you are. You have these descriptions of the houses and descriptions of the cars. And again, you're going to have to study all the characteristics. They're more complicated. And you're going to have to choose one. And then I'm going to do this experiment in different groups of people with different conditions. In one condition, you study all the descriptions, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of time during which you can reflect on what you studied without doing anything else. I just ask you, please take a few minutes and think about what you read. And then after time is up, I say, okay, time to choose. And then you choose. And then in another condition, you study all of the lists, and then at the end of the study, I say, now I'm going to give you a few puzzles to solve. And I will distract you for exactly the same number of minutes, and you're going to be solving anagrams, for example. And you're not going to be able to think about what you just read. And then at the end of exactly the same time, I'm going to say, time is up, choose your object. Okay, so we have these two groups, and we have these two conditions. So I'm not going to start asking you what you think will happen, but I can tell you what the typical answer is if I were to ask you to guess what happens. People will say, well, you know, it stands to reason that if you have very complicated objects, you obviously will benefit from the most study and reflection possible. Also, being conscious of what you're doing is going to help. Do you think that's what happens in reality? Actually, no. And what happens in reality is quite sobering, is that the more complicated the item, the better you choose if you are distracting during the minutes of reflection and you come to the end and you just give me the judgment. And it's in fact with the simpler items that you do better if you are studying the thing and reflecting quite carefully afterwards. So what this really does is produce a result that runs against your expectation. It's in fact quite counterintuitive. And so now I'm going to try to give you my explanation for why this fact occurs. Point number one, when you think about something and you are reflecting on it 
in full consciousness, as you are right now. You're thinking about what I'm saying, and you're wide awake, I hope, and you're listening to me. In spite of the fact that consciousness is very helpful up to a point, it turns out that consciousness requires a very rare commodity in our brain and mind, which is attention. And attention is limited. So beyond a certain amount of items, you're actually not being able to manipulate very well the lists, and you're not going to be able to make in full consciousness the comparisons that you ought to be making in order to decide which is the best car, for example, or the best house. So this brings home the point that conscious thought is limited in its power because conscious thought has a limited capacity. And it is, in fact, of allegedly higher quality, you know, we're thinking like good human beings, and yet we limit ourselves because we constrain our field of attention and we cannot do as well as we should given a large number of items. So that's one of the reasons why the result could come out this way. Is this sufficient to explain what really happens? The answer is no, it's not sufficient. We need another element in the explanation. In fact, we need two more. The other element is emotion. And this is something that through the years we have been working on in a variety of paradigms. And we know for certain that how we place emotion in the context, for example, of a choice is extremely important. And I'm not not talking only about the general emotion that you could have. For example, you could say, oh, so are you suggesting that you choose better because you think about a house that you actually liked very much and that's the best house, the sort of uh, plain intuition? And the answer is no, because in fact, if you go that way, you may end up with a worse house because you may not know, for example, that it was leaking and you may not know that it was in an area that had all sorts of other problems because you don't consider those aspects. And you may not consider that the taxes are actually awful and so on. It's not that. It is that when you think through a list of items that you have to consider and that describe an object, you automatically assign different values of emotion to the different components of the list. And so there's some components that you will react to positively and others that you react to negatively. So when you study it, you end up with a map of certain positives and certain negatives at emotional level. And it is those elements, we think, that are going to sort of shine through while you are distracted. Because for certain, while you are distracted, you maintain the cognitive process. You're still reasoning, quote-unquote, although you're not aware of everything that you're reasoning. But you're reasoning in a very wide space with far greater capacity because it is not constrained by attention. And there, emotion can play its role, and actually it plays its role largely at a non-conscious level. Okay? So that's the second element to give you an idea of why you get this counterintuitive thing. The third one is that none of this would make any sense if you had not been pre-educated into making good choices versus bad choices. And that's where, you know, first I told you about 
decision-making and consciousness. Then I told you about emotion. Now I'm telling you about memory and knowledge that comes from learning. When you make these choices, you're not coming naive to these choices. You're not uh, arriving from the moon and being asked to choose a house or a car. You are, in fact, using a very large baggage of knowledge and of past experiences that have led you into certain kinds of preferences. And if you have reflected in the past, you know that certain things are better than others. For example, you may have decided for yourself that cars with very high mileage relative to the, the fuel tank that are hybrid, for example, are better because they will cost less to maintain and because they will be green and will not produce so much emissions. So these kinds of things, which you have in fact learned about and decided and built a certain set of choices ahead of time that you attach a certain emotion to. And it is then that emotion that allows you to come up with a better solution for you even in a situation in which you are not paying attention to all the particular steps in the decision. So what you really come up with in this situation is something that you could call, in fact, an intuitive response. The, the experiment gives you a counterintuitive result, and yet the mechanism is intuitive in the sense, in the true sense of intuition, which is to arrive at a certain solution after you get the problem, without knowing all the intermediate steps. Of course, we know non-consciously, without that knowledge, you would never have been able to decide a thing. But we're not aware of the mechanics. We're not aware of the little wheels turning that led you to one thing or the other. So I think this is very interesting because it sort of brings together all this map of abilities and it points out the fact that sometimes there are things that we do with our minds and which means with our brains as well that do not appear exactly as you predicted and they're very different because we are far more complex than we normally think of. And one other comment before we leave this topic is that you could say, you know, there's a very old saying that intuition favors the prepared mind. Well, this is exactly what it is. If your mind is not prepared, I would suggest that you shouldn't try this. Because if you're going to try to, if somebody gives you a completely novel kind of object that you're not familiar with, and you're given the descriptions, I don't think it's very advisable to choose in those circumstances. So this works because of these particular conditions. You're listening to world-renowned neuroscientist and best-selling author Antonio Damasio on understanding emotions and the brain in a talk recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This coming Tuesday, May 2nd, 2006 at 7 p.m., the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series invites you to a talk by historian William Deverell at the Los Angeles Central Library. Deverell discusses The Redemptive West, a groundbreaking lecture on the role that the American West played in healing the wounds inflicted by the Civil War. This event is free, but reservations are required. Visit our website to reserve your seats. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll be back in a moment with more from neuroscientist and author Antonio Damasio. Stay tuned. 
Support for kpcc.org comes from Southern California Edison. Electricity is different from other things we use. It can't be stored and it must be used wisely, but we can't do without it completely. Electricity is a special form of energy that brings us light, comfort, and progress. KPCC is proud to announce its monthly arts and culture newsletter built around a monthly theme. As a newsletter subscriber, you'll have the opportunity to receive special discounts on cultural events. Visit kpcc.org and click on the link to sign up. This is Larry Mantle inviting you to join me for our next Air Talk, Monday morning at 10, here on 89.3 KPCC. We'll be closely following Monday's planned boycott, talking about how many people are staying off the job, perhaps even out of school, what the economic impact might be, and even the traffic impact. That's what comes your way in the first hour, followed by conversation on the life of actress Betty Davis. Monday, Air Talk at 10, here on KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to a talk by neuroscientist and author Antonio Damasio on the link between the brain and human emotions, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square lecture series. Now, there's a very interesting background to all of these studies in work that we have been doing for years. And probably the most interesting for you to start will be the fact that patients with damage neurological patients that have brain damage to parts of the brain that have to do with emotion, for example, in regions such as the frontal lobe, um, show themselves to be less capable of making decisions that are advantageous to themselves. So this is actually a very important discovery because it was a very strong first inkling that the traditional view that cold reason is, of course, the best thing you can have and that you should not use emotion in your decision-making was obviously not correct because we can demonstrate that when patients with those kinds of damage lose the ability to use emotion, they are, in fact, worse off than when they use emotion. So this is, again, very counterintuitive, but it's a very well-known result now and very widely replicated, and it shows this incredible tie-up between emotion and reason and why we can never say that being a cold, detached reasoner is better than having some emotion in the process. However, this does not mean that emotion is always good. And I just gave you an example where by choosing the, the house, for example, on the basis of going to a house that you found fleshy and interesting and you wanted to have it, okay? That kind of emotion is not a good counselor to your real estate deals. In some cases, it may be, by the way, but it's not, not necessarily. And in fact, there are examples in which emotion can be profoundly negative. For example, we did a study that was published last year and that was very much talked about in which we showed that if people are in the laboratory, in a laboratory situation, if normal human beings are playing a game which is really a stock market game and they are getting results of their investment and if all of a sudden they get a very major loss the normal reaction of most normals is to withdraw from the game and not continue investing. And, of course, this is very 
much what people do if they are investing in the stock market and all of a sudden they have a major loss and the tendency is to run for cover and take whatever is left of your money and protect it. Well, as most people who know anything about the stock market will tell you, if you don't react that way, the reaction of sudden fear and alarm, if you stay cool in those circumstances, you actually can ride that low in the market and eventually can recoup your losses, which will not happen if you just go and put it in a bank. Now, the interesting thing is that when we did exactly that study, the second part of the study was doing it with neurological patients with damage to the frontal lobe. And what happened is that the patients in those conditions behaved better, and they actually behaved very coolly, and they did not withdraw. And, of course, for that condition, it was very good. But in the real world, those people don't actually do very well, and they make lots of mistakes. So it's not a good idea to get frontal lobe damage in order to do well in the market. I certainly don't recommend that either. Now, the other thing that is interesting is that when you study entirely normal people like us, we're all very normal, uh, and we study them in tasks in which the playing of a money game, let's say an investment game. And when you attach losses or gains to the investment as it goes, we realize that people attach an emotional significance to certain circumstances of the game in which you're more likely to get punishments than rewards. And that in a way, in a very non-conscious manner, we're computing the amount of penalty that we get versus the amount of positive rewards that we get. And because we do that, we tend to non-consciously steer ourselves towards the part of the game where we can get most rewards and stay away from the one where we can get the penalties. So... We have evidence, and this, by the way, can be studied with react physiological reactions such as skin conductance uh, and uh, changes in heart rate, for example. So we have evidence that non-consciously we are attaching certain significance of emotional nature to certain things versus others positive versus negative, depending on the part of the game that we are considering. And we also know that if you are a neurological patient, you lose that ability to make those attachments to positive and negative things. And we're beginning to identify a number of regions of the brain that are associated with the different kinds of emotions. For example, how our brain processes fear or happiness, or sadness, or anger, or compassion are now, this is all in the past 10 years, are now beginning to be quite well known. And the way we experience our feelings of those emotions is also beginning to be well known. What do I mean by this? It means that we know which parts of the brain do what in these different emotions and feelings. This always happens in more than one part of the brain. So when you have the reaction of fear, it's really something that begins in one part of the brain, signals go to yet another part, for example, from the visual cortex to a region called the amygdala, and then 
signals flow to other parts of the brain in the brain stem where you create the emotional reaction of fear and eventually you change your body or you change the brain's body maps and as a result of that you end up having a feeling of that emotion. So it's never one center for fear or happiness or what have you is always a system where you have signals interconnecting but moving very rapidly so that from the beginning to the end of one of these processes it may take half a second for you to start having the first responses of a certain kind of emotional reaction. So it goes very fast but it always involves more than one step and the steps vary so that the way in which you get an emotion like embarrassment is not the same as you get the emotion fear or that you get the emotion happiness. It's different parts of the brain. They have some commonality and they do have a lot of commonality on one part of the brain, which I'm going to tell you the name. Uh, You will be examined at the end, of course. Uh, And the name is the insular cortex. That's insula, I-N-S-U-L-A, the actual meaning of insula is island because this area of the brain is a cortical area that looks a little bit like an island isolated from the rest of the cerebral cortex. And this area, as it turns out, is one of those that best represents our interior, the interior of the body as a whole. It represents, for example, our viscera. It represents the chemistries of our bloodstream. It represents the state of our muscles and has a very complex, multi-level and multi-department map of what we are inside our bodies. And this is very, very important because this possibility of mapping our own body, first of all, there are two ways in which that map is made. One, which actually involves changing the body first and then representing what has happened in the body, something that I've called the body loop mechanism for feeling. And then there's another mechanism which is really quite sensational when you think about it because it's not immediately uh, apparent that that's the way the brain should do it, but it does. And that is a way of simulating states of the body. So we have in our own brains in this region called the insula and a few other connected regions, the possibility of simulating body states, including body states that we don't have right now. So you can imagine body states. And for example, when you look at someone else who is in pain, that part of the brain actually organizes itself as if you yourself were feeling pain. So you literally feel somebody else's pain by making a very rapid simulation inside your own brain. Isn't that phenomenal? Well, it's very interesting, and this opens many other possibilities that I'll tell you in a second. By the way, this is known when I first described this and proposed this as a mechanism, which was about 15 years ago, is known as the as-if body loop, which is obviously what I've just told you. It's not quite the body. It's the as if the body were, in fact, in a certain state, although it isn't. Now, what this does is gives us an understanding of the value of our own thoughts and mental states. So when you are thinking through a certain process, 
because that process is evoking emotions and is evoking feelings, you are thrown into feeling something in parallel with your thought process. And what this does is give you an entry into the emotional value of your own thinking. So in a way, you are understanding about yourself and you are navigating in the world with both the help of the hard facts but also the help of the emotions that accompany the hard facts and they inevitably do unless you're completely plastered with Valium and uh, are not really having much of any feelings and I hope you're not. So uh, you will have this possibility of having this accompaniment. It's like a music score that is there moment by moment, giving you the emotional resonance of your life states. And sometimes it's very intense, sometimes it's almost imperceptible, and it's sort of influencing you below the level of consciousness, but there it is. The other thing that this gives you is something, again, quite sensational, and that is the possibility of knowing about the states of others which you do by a very intermediate way. So if you know about your body states that are connected with a certain emotion, for example, and if you can now represent the body states of somebody else, you have the possibility of relating the body state, say the, the, the face, the configuration, the posture, the movement of another person to your own body state. And then through that enter the emotional significance. So in a way, we have the possibility of reading others mentally by observing their faces and their bodies. And of course, this is precisely what we do, and everybody knows that this is what we do. The question is how we do it. We do it because we have an embodied mind, because we have a brain that represents the body at every moment and even has this extra possibility which is simulating a body state which is not quite the one you're having and not even yours. It can be the body state of somebody else like I described in the case of compassion. So I promised you that I would give you one example of how knowing about these things could be useful. This is a study that was just published in Canada at the University of Toronto, and it involves patients with intractable depression. Now, you all know about depression, and you know several ways in which you can approach it. You can use antidepressants. You can use electroshock therapy, which in some cases is quite indicated and can help. And even so, in many cases, nothing works. Or it works for a while, and then it doesn't. So you have a refractory case. Well, because one knows that one of the parts of the brain that is especially different during states of sadness, uh, and because we know that that part of the brain actually is altered in terms of the brain structure in patients with chronic depression, it was possible for a group of investigators to implant, in a very innocuous way, electrodes in this small region, which happens to be a part of the cingulate cortex known as area 25 or CG 25 and in this small region the, the electrodes were implanted and then a high frequency current was passed through that region so this is done with 
people awake, it's implanted stereotactically, uh, the, the person uh, does not have any pain, any difficulty, but what happened is that in the patients that were just reported, people lifted from this depression and suddenly felt all right. Now, of course, it's too early to say if this is going to work in uh, other groups and if this is going to become a form of treatment, but chances are that it will. And it's a very good example how knowing about all of these internal mechanics of the brain can lead you into not only understanding more about ourselves, but also knowing how to treat a human being that would otherwise not have any other resource because they've gone to the end of the the possibilities. And this, by the way, was inspired by a set of uh, studies that were done largely in France at the University of Grenoble uh, and now some in University of Paris in which neurosurgeons working with patients with Parkinsonism used electrical stimulation precisely of the same type in certain parts of the brain stem to induce an improvement in Parkinsonism. This is now being done uh, throughout the world. Uh, This started about 10 years ago. It's now a very common practice. It's being done in the United States as well. And it's extremely positive in results. And people are not taking medications. The medications weren't even working anymore in most of these cases. So about 10 to 15% of patients with Parkinsonism who did not appear to have any other solution now have another solution, which may actually turn out to be a cleaner and more effective solution for their problem. So uh, I just want to plant in your, in your mind, not electrodes, but rather the idea that there is a whole world to be developed, a world of more information about the human brain and mind that can be useful for treatment of human diseases, but also for understanding of human beings among themselves. You're listening to world-renowned neuroscientist and best-selling author Antonio Damasio in a talk recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. The next live event of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series features historian William Deverell speaking on the American West this Tuesday, May 2nd, 2006 at 7 p.m. at the Los Angeles Central Library. This event is free, but reservations are required. Visit our website to reserve your seats and to download past radio programs. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In just a moment, the Zocalo audience gets its turn with neuroscientist Antonio Damasio. Stay tuned. Next time on Day to Day. An Ivy League college dumps a new logo and returns to the old crest. Crests tend to show that the school has some sort of prominence or that it's old. Why Cornell is polishing its brand with images from the past, next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. KPCC provides an important news service available to you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Because our commitment to news is important to you, please become a member now. You can make your pledge online at kpcc.org.
Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to Antonio Damasio on the link between the brain and human emotions. So I'll stop now so that you can ask questions. Uh, is there an as-if loop in animals? That's an absolutely wonderful question. Um, I think so because there is a number of studies in animals, for example, in monkeys, in which it is clear that certain nerve cells respond to the actions of other monkeys or people that are being seen by the monkey without the monkey making any motion. By the way, these are so-called mirror neurons. In order for the brain to do that, it must have the possibility of implementing simulations that are very much the kind that we have in humans. Now, of course, we have the problem that we cannot ask the monkey specifically what the monkey is feeling at the moment, but we can sort of triangulate that a mechanism that is very comparable must be there. And that should not be surprising because in many of the structures that we're talking about in humans exist in the monkey. They're simpler, smaller, but nonetheless they're of the same kind. So this is a, a guess. Chances are, yes, an asif loop exists in the monkey as well. Please. When you were talking about the brain were able to track other people's bodily states and kind of figure out what they're feeling, I was just curious to know, um, what about when people start projecting their emotions onto other people? And at that point, it seems like our emotions and what we're reading in other people is extremely limited yep. because I'm projecting my emotions on people all the time. So if I know that I'm prone to project, it seems like at this point that my emotions are no longer really reliable anymore, um, reliable guides to what other people are feeling. So I'm just curious to know, from a physical perspective, how does the brain start processing this information and get me to stop projecting or really understand how other people are feeling or to really read other people's bodily states? Right. Um, I think that the mechanism of projection that you're talking about in a way comes in a later stage. So there's something that is apprehended whether you want it or not uh, and it's apprehended very rapidly for example through the visual channel or even through the auditory channel because a lot of the way we do guesses about other people's mental states emotions included is actually through the voice. So it's the way people look in their face, the way people walk, the rate of movement, the gestures, and also how their voices sound, because we all have this possibility of producing music with our speech. So as we talk, we talk with a certain uh, kind of cadence, and we talk uh, in, in ways with rises and falls, a fundamental frequency of our sounds that are very characteristic and that are constantly giving others some idea of what we're thinking, and which are, by the way, extremely difficult to, to disguise, unless, of course, you're a very good actor or a politician, and you're, you're trained to, to, to do it. A lot of the judgments that we make about other presences are so fast, the process is started at such a speed that it can actually occur without us being, again, conscious of it. Uh, a very good example is this. If I give you, in the experimental situation, a set of images that you will not be able to recognize because they're presented so fast that you have no idea, you see a variety of grays and, and shades of gray and, and whites and you have no idea what's being represented. But if in fact I give you 
an image that ought to make you feel fear. For example, the face of somebody in terror or a face of a threatening object. Your amygdala in your brain is going to be active. So if you are having this done to you and you're in the scanner, in in a magnetic resonance scanner, the amygdala is going to respond. So even if you yourself do not know what is there in that image, one sector of the brain that we know is key to the recognition of fear and to the initiation of a response, which is the amygdala, is becoming active. And it will become active in something like 80 milliseconds. So just like that, and you don't even know what's going through you. But it's there, okay? Um, And you talk about the brain, and you talk about the mind. We all know where the brain is. Where exactly is the mind? And where does God factor into this equation? Yes, we, we, we know where the brain is and you know what the brain is doing. The central assumption in these studies, uh, and it is an assumption that is clearly validated by the results and by the kind of uh, correlations that have been obtained and data that takes a few books to, to uh, go through, is that the mind, what you call in psychological terms your mind, the processing of mental images throughout the sensory systems, the processing of thinking, the processing of language, all of those processes are in fact the product of the activity of the brain. They're not the product of the activity of one part of the brain, but rather of incredibly complex systems that are throughout the brain that involve billions of nerve cells, not just strewn there uh, without rhyme or reason, but in a very organized way in which certain processes are made, certain results are obtained. And that is what the mind is. And you can talk about the mind in psychological terms, as you should do, because it is phenomena. It's a set of phenomena that can be studied and the fact that it exists as a reality coming out of the brain uh, is very patent because of the fact that uh, you are hearing me and others are as well, and I'm hearing your questions and I'm understanding that. So there is a system of complete interaction between the set of phenomena that we describe as mental phenomena, i.e. mind, and the set of brain phenomena. Probably the most powerful reason why the two are totally interconnected comes from, by now, over 150 years of studies which show how different parts of the mind will be lost if you lose different parts of the brain. So the case to be made for the interrelation between the two comes out of the fact that when you damage one part of the brain, you will lose one corresponding part of your mind process and your mind capabilities. It can affect memory, it can affect language, it can affect vision or hearing or touch or your ability to feel or your consciousness, you name it. All of those are perfectly mapped in relation to different processes. 
no less precisely, in fact, than the fact that if I have damage to a set of the nerves that is controlling my arm, I will be paralyzed. And I will be paralyzed in one part or another depending on the set of nerves. So that correspondence is complete. I think that if I understand the ultimate goal of your question when you ask also where does God figure in all of this, I think you may have a little bit of concern that when you talk about mind in relation to brain in such a perfectly open manner that somehow you would lose dignity because the mind, which we all are extremely concerned with and we consider dignified and certainly the most important product of a human organism, that the mind would be just there connected to a brain. And if that worries you, let me tell you two things. One is that when you study the brain, when you study the organization of the nervous system and the prodigious complexity that you have uh, in that organization, the only thing you can have is awe and admiration. You, You really shudder to think how that has been put together and the complexity of it is something that you could never treat with anything less than admiration and with anything less than respect for the dignity it deserves. And if you then say, well, and what about God? Did God make that complexity? There, I would have to say that that is in fact a question that science cannot tackle. And I would leave that discussion, which have to do with religious belief and with faith. And I don't think the two are incompatible. And I'm not going to tell you what my beliefs are or are not. But when you are a scientist and you're working with phenomena of the mind and phenomena of the brain, you have to study those that you can study. And you simply do not have a way of making hypotheses or experiments about the relation between, uh, say, God's creation of the brain or God's not creation of the brain. You you simply cannot do that. On the other hand, you can study things that are part of our brain function and our mind function that have a lot of relation to the extremely refined and uh, one could even say sublime forms of belief and reaction that human beings can have in relation to the notion of life, in relation to the notion of the sacred, uh, and, and, and that's a different story. That you can study, and it's the province of neuroscientific studies. There's no reason why you shouldn't do it. But so that's, I think, the best I can do for your very specific question. I wonder if you could uh, comment on how uh, your ideas impact our understanding of autism, uh, which you mentioned earlier. In particular, you mentioned how our minds can uh, represent other people's feeling states, and this is clearly a problem that people with autism or Asperger's have. Very good. Well, I think that, uh, first of all, uh, autism is not one condition, is not one disease, it's a spectrum of of diseases, very wide, and there are People, for example, with high-functioning autism uh, can be brilliant and be contributing members to society, to a family, and so on. Um, And there are people that have severe limitations of function. If there is a center to this spectrum of conditions, it has to do with the difficulty in relating socially. So this 
not understanding what is in someone else's mind, and especially at the level of feeling, is absolutely central to it. So how you get to that problem, how you get to have that defect, because it is for all intents and purposes a defect, uh, depends. You could get it by being unable to do this as-if body transformation in relation to the other, but you could get it also by having other um, problems with the filtering of the cognitive process or other problems at different points in the general production of uh, emotions and feelings. So I think it's too early to say that it is one thing. But without a doubt, this issue of the social reading is very, very central to it. And this also applies to other uh, so-called learning disabilities or developmental disabilities like uh, dyslexia. Um, The more we understand about human intelligence and the capacities of the human mind, the more we realize that we are all very similar in the sense that we have the same basic structure of mind, but we're also extremely different from one another in what we can achieve. Now, when you think about people like Mozart and many other major creative minds, uh, a lot of them probably turned out to have things that were variants of autism, including Asperger's syndrome. So we could have a trade-off, and that is we go beyond being scientists or physicians and have to uh, insist on having society play a role in debating, provided society is educated and intelligent, Uh, playing a a role in deciding on how one deals with these things. Uh, Because it may be that there is actually a trade-off and that there are lots of people who have one of these disabilities, but lo and behold, they can be fantastically good in mathematics or in music or in, uh, uh, for example, economic games. Uh, And we know, for example, that plenty of people that have severe cases of dyslexia that turn out to be great painters and sculptors. And uh, more and more there is evidence for that. So is is it bad to be dyslexic? Well, yes, in a certain way. But if you have something else that trades for it, uh, maybe it's not so bad. Again, this is not just for scientists and uh, physicians to decide. It's for all of us to decide. But we have to understand the problem. Otherwise, we're not going to vote blindly and say, do or not do. Okay? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to world-renowned neuroscientist and best-selling author Antonio Damasio in a talk recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Special thanks to the Los Angeles Times, the James Irvine Foundation, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles for making this program possible. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Or visit the podcast page at KPCC.org. The producer for Zocalo is Peter Stencil. Jade Gow is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening.